welcome to the post-World Series edition of the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. Congratulations to the Los Angeles Dodgers on winning the World Series for the first time since 1988. Particular congratulations to SIS alums Lee Tackett, a scout, Matt Doppelt, the coordinator of analytics and international scouting, and Brent Minta, the pitching analytics coordinator. When they show the highlight tape at Mookie Betts' Hall of Fame induction in, oh, say, 2038, it will prominently feature a number of plays from the 2020 World Series. You can count on two getting the full every-angle treatment. His home run robbery against Freddie Freeman in Game 7 of the NLCS, and his dash for the plate to score the go-ahead run in Game 6 of the World Series. Mookie Betts is an excellent hitter. 296, 378, 493 in the postseason comparable to what he did during the regular season in both 2019 and 2020. But what separates Betts from his peers is that he does that and is a great defender and base runner. Betts is the major league leader in defensive runs saved since the start of the 2016 season. He has more than Andrelton Simmons, more than Nolan Arenado, and more than Kevin Kiermeyer. He covers as much ground as any outfielder in the majors. He saw it countless times and his throwing arm also ranks near the top. Betts also leads the majors in another stat over that time period. We measure base running by what we call net gain. How many more bases did you gain over a full season than an average runner? In the last five seasons, Betts has a net gain of 190 bases, best in the majors, ahead of Billy Hamilton and Mike Trout. Betts led MLB in this stat in 2020 as well. The 2020 season stunk for a lot of reasons. There were reminders of just what the world is going through and dealing with at every turn. For all the depressing impressions of 2020 in baseball and beyond, it was cool to bask in the greatness of Mookie Betts whenever he took the field. The baseball season may be over, but it's just the time to get the 2021 Bill James Handbook, published by Acta Sports. And we've got Bill James himself here to talk about what he wrote. Bill, of course, the father of baseball sabermetrics. He's written many books. The handbook contains the spirit of its predecessors, the abstract, the baseball book, and the gold mine, with its combination of stats and essays. Uh, Bill, first of all, I guess I would just ask, what do you like most about the handbook? I enjoy very much working with Sports Info Solutions and John Dewan because they get things done. And this is a very old story, but I'll tell it because it answers your question. In the 1980s, I tried to do a newsletter with Random House. And that was very frustrating because although it was Random House's idea to do the newsletter, the cycle from my sending it to them until it reached the audience was three months. And they didn't see this as a problem. Uh, So I wrote a kind of outraged letter on this issue and I got back a letter from the publisher saying that uh, this had move from receipt to sending it to the printer in just 14 days. So you can see we're doing all we can on our end. All right. So that didn't work at all. The, uh, with about 1989 or 1990, I sent a message to a different company that John worked with and owned at that time, suggesting doing what became the handbook. And I met with them three weeks later, and they had produced a, the book. I mean, not the book it is now, but they produced a book that was essentially what I was trying to do. I was astonished. Like, wow, this, this is great. 
that's what I've always enjoyed doing, working with Sports Info Solutions and John's companies is that they get things done. We do try to move things quickly along. All right, so in this year's handbook, it's loaded with essays. Many of the people at Sports Info Solutions wrote essays in large quantities. You wrote uh, some very interesting ones in this year's book, and I thought it would be interesting to offer a preview of them. Uh, First of all, I love this because it took something that you had done 30-ish years ago and turned it uh, on its head and did it in a different way. Uh, Can you explain to us the concept of the game score for batters? For many years, I wouldn't have a game score for batters. I have a game score for pitchers, which actually works. It's become a popular concept. ESPN concludes in their box scores. I wanted to have a game score for batters, and I couldn't make it work for a long time because I was trying to apply too many of the rules for the pitchers to the batters. For example, I was trying to center it at 50 on a 100-point scale. Great game is 100, terrible game is zero. But that doesn't work at all for a hitter because, and I, I should have realized this before now, but I didn't, that uh, hitters do almost all of their damage in just a few games. E- even the best hitters in baseball create over half of their runs in the season in 25 to 30 games. Uh, so you have to have scores of around 100 for those really productive games for hitters, and the average is only 25. I intended it just as a fun thing to play around with. I'm sure that somebody will find some serious purpose for it sooner or later, but I like to be able to spot by an organized process what everybody's best game of the year was and what their best game of the the week was and who had the biggest game of the season in the majors and also the worst games. Yesterday I learned that Eddie Murray's biggest game was, and I forget the date, but it was a game late in his career when he drove in nine runs and hit three homers. That's, and that's cool. And I, I hope that, I'm hopeful that it'll catch on like the pitching one did. Certainly you mentioned ESPN.com. You can find it on Baseball Reference as well. And it's cool to look up like who had the most 80s in a season uh, for pitching, something like that. So right. for hitting, uh, you mentioned that you're centering at 25. 100 or higher is a super game. You found two players who had eight super games. I thought this was kind of cool within the data set that you worked with, Ralph Kiner and Willie Stargell, and then Ryan Sandberg had seven. And I would hope that the Sandberg game, the one where he hit the home run against Bruce Suter twice, is among them. Can you tell us, though, that the, there was one game that you found with a negative score? Yeah, the only game with a negative score is uh, Joe Torre. One game grounded into four double plays. I think he went over four. I believe yep. he went over four grounded in four double plays. And I can't tell you the date, but that's the only game I have found so far in setting about 400,000 games in which a player managed to have a, a negative score for the game. I, th- I thought it was, uh, it, that was fun. Uh, it's interesting. It's fun. It's entertaining. Uh, it gives you a lot to look at. And the, the stat that you mentioned before about how a good hitter does half his damage in such a compact number of games, and then the other games, he's not necessarily that good. Uh, I think that's a discovery that I think will resonate with uh, people as well. As for other things that you did in the book, uh, you did a, a interesting piece about teams and Hall of Famers. Now, you touch on the Hall of Fame regularly in your work in a number of different ways, usually that focus on players. But here you looked at teams, and you did something that I, I thought that really probably should have been done a long time ago, uh, but you did it in a very organized way. You looked to see how many Hall of Famers were on a team's roster in a given year. In the findings of that piece, 73% of teams that you checked 
had a Hall of Famer on their roster at one point during a season. So that was one thing, and that didn't necessarily matter if it was a guy at the very end of his career or at the very beginning or in his prime, 73% in all. Uh, The thing that I I found interesting, and perhaps this is because I'm New York-based, is that you looked at team kind of segments over periods of years and uh, teams that were overrepresented and underrepresented. And one of the teams that you had that was underrepresented was the 1970s Yankees. And I was curious for, for your take on that. I'd done earlier studies which showed that the Yankees had done well in Hall of Fame voting, but this, this study suggested that, at least by this approach, if you compare the success of their teams to the number of Hall of Famers, they actually have, are not overrepresented. They've, they've actually a little bit underrepresented. The 1970, of course, Thurman died before he became a really credible Hall of Fame candidate. So he's a guy who was a leader of that team, is not in the Hall of Fame. Ron Guidry, who was, I would guess, the most valuable player on that team in the years 1977 to 1980, was, he could be in the Hall of Fame, but he's not. Willie Randolph was a a truly great player. I mean, very few people realize that because he didn't have one flashy skill, but the balance of his skills, he was an enormously valuable player, and he could be in the Hall of Fame. But he isn't. Uh, so the, the Yankees from the 1970s wind up with, if you compare the success of the team to the number of Hall of Famers there, they're well behind, below schedule. Yeah, and, and I think that you explained that well. Willie Randolph, certainly with the on-base percentage and the defensive play, uh, the combination would be looked upon. I even I talked to him about this once. The combination would be looked upon differently now, I think, than it was at the time in which he right. played. Uh, so this is another... Also, very, I should have mentioned Greg Nettles. Yep. Greg Nettles is another guy there who was really a great player. And there are players not as good as Nettles who are on the Hall of Fame, but uh, Nettles is not. And then on the other side of the coin, you felt that there were some teams that were uh, slightly over-representative, uh, over-represented, and I'm looking at, at the list right now. Number one there is San Diego. The, yep. the, the Padres historically have a lot more Hall of Famers than success. Uh, now that that's uh, well, they had Winfield, they had McCovey, they had Tony Gwynn, they had McGwin for his whole career, so that certainly accumulated. And the Padres, and this is to their credit, not in any way a knock on them, but in their early years, they had an incredible run of production from their farm system. I think they came up with three Hall of Famers in their first eight drafts or something like that. They, that was Winfield, Ozzie Smith, and Tony Gwynn. Gwynn didn't reach the majors that quickly, but their eighth or ninth draft, something like that. That's really astonishing. And they had some other good players. But they never they never put it together to win a number of games that justified that draft production. Yeah, I'm looking at a chart that's in the book, 1969 to 2000, comparing them to the Royals, a team that you're certainly very familiar with. Padres had a 458 win percentage. Royals were just over 500. Uh, the Padres had 10 Hall of Fame players. The Royals only had four. Uh, moving over to something else with the Hall of Fame, you have a whole bunch of uh, Hall of Fame kind of ranking systems, deserved systems, all sorts of different systems on the Hall of Fame side that help people organize their thinking on the issue, as, as I think you explain it. Uh, can you explain uh, where those, those stand at the moment? The Hall of Fame monitor is um, a system that was designed in the 1970s and has been remodeled several times since then to try to figure out where a player sits on the road toward the Hall of Fame. Driving in 100 runs is a, is, the sort, is the type of accomplishment that if you do it all the time, will put you in the Hall of Fame. And you can think, 
pay whatever you want to about RBI as a valuable statistic. That's not the point. The fact is that hitting that hitting 300 every year will help you get into the Hall of Fame, and driving in 100 runs a lot of times will put you in the Hall of Fame or getting 200 hits. I tried to measure all of the things that push you further along the road toward the Hall of Fame, such as playing in an all-star game, playing in a World Series, or winning an MVP award, or leading the league in doubles. Anything that is a point toward the Hall of Fame, I tried to figure out how many points it is, and then keep track of where everyone sits with regard to the Hall of Fame. It's a system that it always, I mean, it's never perfect. It will always tell you that, uh, well, for example, decided imperfection, it thinks that Brian Brock, it thinks that he's pretty clearly a Hall of Famer, although you and I know that he isn't. And there's a, there's a couple of tricks to it. It just, it does not make an adjustment for the fact that he failed a steroid test, which will affect how people think of him and some other things about it that aren't precisely right. But in general, it works. In general, if a player has a score higher than 100, he will wind up in the Hall of Fame. And in general, if he has a score less than 70, he has no chance. And the shame of this season is that, that no one could really make a dent in their right. uh, Hall of Fame monitor score. Looking back, one of my, uh, a couple of my favorite Bill James devices, one is similarity scores, which you can find on Baseball Reference. It's terrific. Right. You can use it as a way to compare players. Another is the favorite toy. This I remember from when I was eight, and I learned about it not long after I learned how to multiply and divide. It's a system that allows you to, ha- to assess a player's chances of reaching 3,000 hits, 500 home runs, or other milestones. For example, Mike Trout has a 12% chance at 756 home runs. Freddie Freeman has a 26% chance at 3,000 hits, 15% at 2,000 RBIs. You did a checkup on the accuracy of it. What did you find? I found that with regard to 3,000 hits and with regard to players post post-World War II, and with regard to players who are estimated to have a 20% chance or better, that system is uncannily accurate. It's just a really simple thing, and it's based on a kind of intuitive logic, and when I started using it, I made no promises at all that it would actually work, but it it works astonishingly well given those three parameters. One, that you're only talking about players post-World War II, that you're only talking about players who have at least a 20% chance, and you're talking about 3,000 hits. When you get off that the course, it's a little bit less accurate with players less than 20%, and that's there's something there we could fix if you had to work hard enough at it. But it is less accurate with regard to, it has been historically less accurate with regard to home runs, and we made a little tweak to the system to try to improve that. But I was very, I was frankly amazed at how, if that system says you have a 57% chance to get 3,000 hits, you have a 57% chance to get 3,000 hits because that's what the data shows. (laughs) I love it. Uh, 3,000 hits right now, Miguel Cabrera, 83%, Freeman at 26, as I said, Robinson Cano at 26, and then Manny Machado at 19. Uh, The full list, the articles are in the uh, 530s, 540s, on, in the Bill James uh, handbook for this year. I wanted to plug something to on Bill James Online because there are probably multiple books worth of articles on that website, billjamesonline.com. For those that are unfamiliar, you can go onto the site. Bill will answer questions in the uh, 
there's a section called Hey Bill, where you can ask Bill a question, and, and he tends to answer, and it, the responses are pretty cool. The, the discussions are really neat. There was an article recently about MVP races and which years had the best or worst combinations of candidates, and I'll just use one example. 2004, the National League had seven candidates who were, by your definition, super standouts, and that's the year that Bonds drove 232 walks. Uh, Beltre hit 48 home runs, Pools hit 46, Scott Rowland, Jim Edmonds, Abreu, Mark Loretta, J.D. Drew, Todd Helton, Lance Berkman all had big years. What was the, the biggest uh, thing you took away from that article when you read it? Well, there were some surprises. For example, when I uh, explained the concept in a Hey Bill question, I said that the 1960 National League was a weak year that, you know, Dick Grove won the MVP award that year. And by the way, I, I may be the only person who's old enough to care about Dick Grove winning the <laughs> MVP award in 1960. I don't know. Anyway, uh, and so I, I always assumed that that was a, a weak crop of MVP candidates. But actually it wasn't. It was an average crop. It was a funny year in which all of the best players in the league had down years by their own standards. But nonetheless, what would you would think of as MVP years anyway? For example, Henry Aaron in 1960 hit 292 with 40 homers and 120 RBI, which was actually a down year by Henry Aaron's standards. So he wasn't think of, thought of as an MVP candidate because he didn't have a good year. But, you know, Henry Aaron is a right fielder born in 1934 who hit 40 homers, 292, 120 RBI. In the American League the same year, a right fielder born in 1934 won the MVP award hitting for a lower average with fewer homers and fewer RBI. So Aaron could have won the MVP award. He would have been legitimate. Mays would have been. Eddie Matthews probably should have won it. Even Banks, although he was down from his MVP years in 1958 and 1959, still had what you would ordinarily think of as an MVP-type season. But like the other guys, because he was down from his previous years, he didn't win it. So that was interesting. I'll give away the secret at the end of the article, if that's okay with you. Yeah, go ahead. The strongest crop of MVP candidates in the history of baseball in one year was the 1969 National League. And there are like seven guys who had what would be MVP seasons if they just weren't competing with one another. Uh, Willie McCovey, and none of them was had a super season. I mean, none of them had a, a year like, well, you remember the year that Miguel Cabrera won the Triple Crown and Trout pushed him for the MVP award. None of them had that kind of year, but there were a whole bunch of years that ordinarily this would be an MVP season, starting with Willie McCovey, who won it, and who deserved it, I think. But also Tom Seaver had an MVP season. Bob Gibson actually pitched better than Seaver did, although his one-loss record wasn't as good. And, you know, Jimmy Wynn, although you don't win the MVP award based on walks, but he did have a season that in terms of its value would make you an, make an MVP season. So that was, that was up. It's a cool article from the point of view of people who like to talk about golden ages of baseball and years that were the best years for a, right. a, a particular time. Uh, all right, so two questions to go. Uh, so I love looking at one of your stats from days gone by, offensive win percentage. Uh, it's actually right. on the Baseball Reference website as a leaderboard. I probably check it 10 times a year uh, just to see how guys are doing, and I think it's cool to be able to say, if you had nine of this guy, here's how you would do. Do you have a stat from your past that you wish people were more latched onto, like I'm latched onto that one? Number one candidate, we secondary average. I've always liked 
the idea of measuring or dividing what a player does into two things, which are his batting average, which we see all the time, and his secondary average, which people don't, don't look at as much. Very few people even understand or know what it is, but it's it's a measure of the other things that he that a hitter does, which centers at the same point over time, so that a player, well, George Brett is an example. George Brett in a typical year, or Musial, Brett would hit about 300 with a secondary average of about 300, meaning that his batting average was a true indicator of how valuable he was. And the same with Musial. Musial would hit 330 with a secondary average of about 330 in a typical year. But some players are far better offensively than their batting averages. Ted Williams was. Ted Williams hit 340, but secondary average of over 400, typically. The uh, But Joe Morgan or uh, Jimmy Wynn, who I mentioned, were vastly better. And and uh, the uh, there are players every year who are just a lot better than their batting average will, t- will show you. And there are players who... There are players who are sort of frauds that they hit they hit 300 but have a secondary average of 180 and they're really not as valuable as that and and that so I wish that stat had gained more popularity. Well, it is on Baseball Reference. Uh, it's in their uh, kind of advanced stat section next to Isolated Power for anyone that's looking for it. Uh, if you hover over it, it explains the formula. It gives you the standards. Over 500 is excellent. Uh, under 200 is poor. That's still there, and, and it's kind of in the same vein of uh, offensive win percentage. Want more people to check it out? Hopefully, if they listen to us, they will. I, I did advance similarity scores, uh, and, and they are on, on uh, baseball reference. But they, that's always frustrated me, and I always mean to talk to Sean and try to get this fixed. The, uh, what he put on the site is the initial version of, of uh, similarity scores. But with modern computers, which are able to look at many more factors, there are what I invented. What I intended for similarity scores was not for there to be a them to be a fixed set of values, but for them to be to vary with what you needed them for. In other words, a play, two players may be similar in one respect and totally dissimilar if you look at another set of values. Uh, in other words, you may have two guys who are both left-handed hitters and both five foot 11 and weigh 180 pounds and both outfielders have both played from 1971 to 1984 but in terms of what they did on the field they may be totally different types of players and what i i use similarity scores to do studies of issues all the time but you never i never just use the original system i i vary the system every time in order to focus it on what is most relevant to what it is I'm trying to study. But I, I, I always mean to talk to Sean Foreman, who runs Baseball Reference, and try to convince him to replace the similarity scores system that's on there with a, a version of similarity scores that can, contains a lot more factors uh, and would get a, a similarity based on a broader range of considerations. Oh, that, that would be cool. That, and that's something that I think that people are very uh, into on the site, and I think it would be a, a good development. Are there any, can you give us any, like, hints as to what some of the factors you'd like to add are? At the time that I developed similarity scores, there wasn't any anything that summarized a player's total value. Well, there was. There was approximate value, which was an, an early system that I used, but, you know, that, it, it doesn't have modern relevance. So what I would start with now is similarity in total value. Sometimes, on based on reference, a player who has two war will be most similar to a player who has five war. 
that shouldn't happen because there should be a, an element of it which is based on war. I, I would include players who played. You don't really want a player who was born in 1925 to turn up as most similar to a player who was born in 1990. Uh, and that does happen once in a while. So I would include those. Size is not a major variable. It is a little off-putting when a, a <laughs> six-foot-five-inch, two hundred and forty-pound outfielder turns up as most similar to a a five-foot-nine-inch, one hundred and seventy-pound catcher. And those things do happen once in a while. And I'd like to I'd like to focus on a, a broader range system so that you get you don't get those once in a while crazy outliers. Although they're fun. So, last question. This has seemed like the October of Mookie Betts, and you've seen him dating back to his earliest Major League days when he played for the Red Sox and you worked for them. What are your thoughts about him and this postseason? It's great to see Mookie doing so well. It is hard. I mean, I it was it was a hard blow when the Red Sox had to, to me personally and to everybody who loves the Red Sox, when the Red Sox had to let go of him. And I haven't really recovered from that yet. Uh, it is good to see, let the nation see what he is. And, and the player you're seeing is the player that we saw for years. It, it was hard to explain to people until they saw it, how good this, really, this guy really is. That he's not just a good right fielder, he's a spectacularly good right fielder. And he doesn't just have a good arm, he has it. Clemente arm, you know. I mean, it's really hard to explain. And he's not just an alert base runner. He's not just fast. He's fast and alert and smart on the bases. It, it's it, it is great to see people get a chance to see that, and that is the real guy you're seeing. Nice. All right, that's a good note on which to end. Uh, Bill, thank you for taking the time to join us. The 2021 edition of the Bill James Handbook is available for order from ActaSports.com. This year's book features lots of great insights. Bill invented a new stat to measure game score for batters. We look at the impact of the rule changes made in the shortened season and the weird stats that a short year creates. Speaking of stats, we've got lots of them. Career and year-by-year totals for every major leaguer, plus deep dives into defensive runs saved, RBI percentages, shifts, the Hall of Fame, and more. Plus, the first set of hitter and pitcher projections for the 2021 season. That's the Bill James Handbook 2021 edition, available at actosports.com, where you can get 10% off and free shipping. Order today. It's time to announce the winners of the 2020 Fielding Bible Awards. This is the 15th year in which we've handed out this honor. The award goes to the top defensive player at each position, as well as an award for the top defender who's considered a multi-position player. The awards are determined by a panel of 12 baseball experts who rank the top five players at each defensive position on a scale from one to five. A first place vote gets five points all the way down to one point for fifth place. Total up the points and the player with the most points gets the award. A perfect score is 60. So let's get to it and announce the winners. At first base, Matt Olson joins Albert Pujols as the only players at the position to win a Fielding Bible Award in three straight seasons. Over the last three seasons, he's well ahead of the rest of the field in the range component of defensive runs saved. And he's the MLB leader in that time in scoop runs saved, which is for runs saved for handling difficult throws. Just ask Matt Chapman and Marcus Simeon how valuable Olson is. 
At second base, Colton Wong becomes the first to win a Fielding Bible Award in three straight seasons. He's now won two close votes there, this year and 2018, sandwiched around a unanimous choice in 2019. Wong was the only winner from a Cardinals infield that was the best in baseball at turning ground balls and bunts into outs. His 40 runs saved at the position over the last three seasons are easily most in the majors. At shortstop, Javier Baez lost out to Nick Ahmed in 2019, but wins a tight vote in 2020. This is Baez's fourth Fielding Bible Award, his first at shortstop. The other three were multi-position awards. Baez finished tied for second among shortstops in the component of defensive run save that measures range, throwing, and handling balls hit in the air. He finished tied for first in double play run saved. At the hot corner, Nolan Arenado takes his fourth Fielding Bible Award, tying third baseman Adrian Beltre for the most won at the position since we began handing them out in 2006. Arenado led all Major League players with 15 runs saved. Tyler O'Neill of the Cardinals is the fifth different left fielder to win a Fielding Bible Award in the last five years. He earned it on the strength of a Major League leading nine runs saved at the position. O'Neill won with his play on balls hit to the deepest part of the ballpark, excelling at that. Kevin Kiermeyer won the closest vote, edging out Byron Buxton in a tiebreaker, receiving one more first-place vote. Kiermaier won this one in a little different fashion than he did in 2015. This year, his outfield arm carried him. He had six outfield arm runs saved, double that of the next closest player. In right field, Mookie Betts won for the fourth time in five seasons, making his first season with the Dodgers highly successful. Betts' four Fielding Bible Awards pass Ichiro and Jason Hayward for the most won by a right fielder since the awards began in 2006. Betts extended his streak of seasons with at least 10 runs saved at an outfield position to 6. At catcher, Roberto Perez became the first repeat winner since Buster Posey in 2015-2016. Though Perez finished third among catchers in defensive runs saved, he had a positive run save total in pitch framing, pitch blocking, and stolen base deterrence. His Major League best three stolen base runs saved came from catching 9 of 13 base stealers. Braves pitcher Max Fried led the position with five defensive runs saved, matching the total he recorded in 2019. Fried had quick reflexes to snag hard-hit ground balls and had the ability to get off the mound to field a weak dribbler or bunt. Additionally, his four pickoffs tied Tyler Anderson for the Major League lead. And the multi-position award goes to Kike Hernandez of the Dodgers. He saved a Major League high nine runs at second base, made three starts in right, three starts in center, two starts in left, two starts in short, and played seven innings at first base. He was a major asset to the Dodgers defensively, and in winning his first Fielding Bible Award, he helped the team to the best record in the majors. Congratulations once again to the winners of the 2020 Fielding Bible Awards, Matt Olson, Colton Wong, Javier Baez, Nolan Arenado, Tyler O'Neill, Kevin Kiermeyer. Mookie Betts, Roberto Perez, Max Fried, and Kike Hernandez. And this wraps up this episode of the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. Special thanks to our guest, Bill James, and our producer, Justin Stein. Please rate and review us if you can. I'm Mark Simon. Stay safe and stay well. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.